0: Our God, we give you thanks for this time together to consider your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be present and that he would both empower the preaching and the hearing of the word. We are helpless on our own and we need the Holy Spirit to overcome our own sin, our own blindness, our own hardness of our heart, our own darkness and dullness of mind. So come illuminate and open and reveal. And as we hear your word. Help us to align ourselves and our lives to it. Be encouraged by it, corrected by it, instructed by it, so that we might live lives that are to your glory and then full of joy for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are coming down the home stretch in our series on prayer. We'll be wrapping this up in the next few weeks or so. And I do want to say that I am So grateful to God and encouraged for how you have received God's word over this season and how you have received with humility God's word, especially as we've talked through prayer. As I've talked with you, I've been deeply encouraged that, like it says in Thessalonians, you have received this word not as the opinion of a man, of a fallen, humble, uh, mistake-ridden small man, but rather as the eternal, wise, perfect words of God, and you've received that truly well, and I'm grateful. I'm also grateful for what God is doing, as I've heard from many of you, in your own life and relationship with God, and in your homes, particularly even in the area of prayer. I'm so grateful to God for you. I love you deeply in the Lord. Um, I, I counted a great blessing and honor that God would let me be a part of Seven Mile Road, be with you on this mission together, and love you in the Lord. And don't say that enough, so I do now, okay? That's as mushy as I can be, so uh, let's get to work on the text. This week we're in Luke chapter 18, the passages that Keith read for us in the first eight verses. And in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. When Jesus tells a parable, and he does often throughout his teaching ministry, it's the story that he tells that is supposed to sort of draw you into the story, and as you step into the story, you're supposed to get the point. You're supposed to get the intended meaning or the lesson of the story. So he tells these vivid, really uh, attractive stories. You find yourself compelled, drawn into the stories, and then as you sort of identify with certain characters in the story, you get the point of what he was trying to teach. Some of Jesus' parables are sort of head scratchers. You you sort of hear it and you're not really sure what he means. So for example, he'll tell a story about the sower and the seed. And so he tells this story about this man who throws out seed and some of the seed falls on hard ground and the birds pluck it away. Some of it falls on shallow soil. It springs up quickly but is burnt up by the sun. Some of it falls among thorns and weeds and it grows up but it's choked out. Some of it falls on good fertile soil. And it grows up and produces fruit 60 and 100 fold. Now the disciples hear that story. They think it's an amazing story. But they scratch their head and they go, what was that about? Are we the birds? Are we the weeds? Are we the ground? Or what, what part of the story are we? And Jesus tells us that some of his stories are veiled in mystery. And he reveals it to those whom he intends to reveal it. And so he tells his disciples in that story how the word and the gospel goes out and some of it lands on people's hearts and their heart and the enemy plucks it away. And some of it is choked out by the cares and concerns of the world. And some of it is received quickly, but it burns up when adversity hits. And every now and then, one out of four times or so, the word actually plants deep into someone's heart, bears fruit 60 and 100 fold. In Luke, we get a parable as well, but Luke does us a huge favor in that Luke, right at the outset, tells us what the parable is about. So we sort of don't have to scratch our heads, we don't have to worry, we don't have to wonder. Luke gives us a guide to interpret this parable in verse 1. Look at what he says in 18 verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, told them, that's the disciples, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus in this one, Luke tells us this is the point of the parable. This is the lesson. Jesus is telling this story so that as you're drawn in, as you identify with these characters, this ought to result in the effect that you will always pray and not lose heart. That's the intended meaning of the parable. And Jesus says this to them that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. In part because of what he said right before this. If you turn the page back one in Luke 17, Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples about how he's going to come again. So he's come once, but he'll come again. He's arrived, but he will return. And in between these two comings, his first coming and his second coming, he knows that there's going to be some time. And he wants his disciples to know that as they live in that interim between his first coming and his second coming, between his arrival and his return, they will be tempted to lose heart, to in that weariness of waiting as each day progresses and he still has not returned and he still has not returned, they will be tempted to lose heart. And particularly they'll be tempted to be weary and grow weary in prayer. And so he wants them to know. He wants them to know in advance. After I'm gone, and as you, this is the time we're living in right now, wait for my return. In that interim, I don't want you to lose heart. As you face obstacles and uh, opposition, as you face the difficulties of trying to live for Jesus in a world that isn't for Jesus, you're going to be tempted to lose heart. As you face the difficulties that come with being in a sinful world, you're going to be tempted to lose heart. And so Jesus wants to tell this story to have the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus also teaches this parable not just because he's just taught them about his coming and his coming again, but just because he knows how hard prayer is. He knows how hard it is to persevere and persist and be resilient and resolved to pray. He knows what you go through, how hard it is for you, for me, to persevere in prayer, right? If, if you've ever prayed, you know what I'm talking about, right? Particularly if you know what it's like to pray about something once and then to pray about it again and that same thing again and again and again and again. If you know what it's like to pray in the face of unanswered prayers, and yet persevere in prayer and persist in prayer and be resilient and resolved in prayer, you know how easy it is to be tempted to quit, to lose heart, to grow weary, to grow faint, to just say it's, it's not going to happen. You, you, you perhaps from your own life know it. I know of people who have been praying for the same thing. It's one thing to pray for something once, to pray for that same thing over and over again. I know people who have been praying for decades for the same exact thing. Maybe you know what that's like, to, to pray and not feel like anything's happening. The circumstance doesn't change, the situation doesn't get revolved. You pray, but that person is still single, though everything in them wants to be married, and they're just not going to pray about it anymore. Or, or you keep praying, and they still can't get pregnant, though everyone around them knows they would be such a great parents, such a great couple. Or you pray, And no matter how hard you've prayed and no matter how long you've prayed, it seems like she still is not going to repent and become a believer. And you're trying so hard to persevere in prayer. And yet, how long are you going to do that? It is very easy. I know it from my life. I know it from my home. I know it from stories of you. To grow cynical, to grow bitter, to grow hopeless, to be tempted to quit, to to feel like if God was going to do something, he would have done it by now. And if he's not going to do it, I'm done. To, to even grow numb in that area of your life and say, I, I'll live for Jesus, but this section is compartmentalized out, and I'm done. If he's going to do whatever he's going to do, he'll do it. But I have no more strength, no more resiliency, no more resolve to persist or persevere in prayer. It is very difficult. Jesus knows it's hard. It's next to impossible, which is why he tells this story. Because again, the intended effect is as you listen to this story, he hopes that it will move you to always pray and not lose heart. And so Jesus tells the story so that his disciples, both then and you who follow Jesus now, would hear the story, enter into the story, and as you understand the story, Jesus is hoping it would put steel in the spine of your prayer life. To take that which is a sifting as sand and put steel and resilience and resolve to cause you to persist and persevere in prayer. And to that end, he tells this story. So let's, let's look at it together. Verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So that's that's the beginning of the story. And in the story, Jesus presents two characters. These are well-developed, very strong characters. And you probably cannot find two more contrasting characters than these two. These two are polar opposites. The first one you meet is in that city there is a certain judge. And the description we get from the text about that judge is that he neither feared God nor respected man. That, When Jesus says, here's a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, that's basically saying this is the worst kind of man you could possibly imagine. This is a piece of work. This is a jerk, right? Everybody would agree that this would be the worst kind of man. H- here's what I mean. Religious people get annoyed with secular people, get bothered by secular people, Because secular people will talk a great deal about loving people and being respectful to people, but are judgmental, kind, mean about beliefs in God, and that bothers religious people. Secular people get bothered by religious people because they talk a great deal about loving God, but they're often unkind, mean, and judgmental to people. And yet both sides would come stand side by side, hold hands and agree. The worst kind would be to have someone who neither respects God nor respects man, right? On the one, at least you think something about God, though you're totally useless to everyone around you. On the other side, you're great with everyone around you, though you're useless to God. The worst would be someone who neither fears God nor respects man, who, who doesn't have within himself this kind of internal compass that points upward and says, I belong to God, I am accountable to God, who doesn't have a fear in him that one day I will give an account for my actions to God, I ought to live a certain way because there is a God, to have none of that, but then to also not have the common decency that says, I ought to be helpful, I ought to be compassionate, I ought to try to be my best to be good in society, I ought to try my best to be helpful to people and respectful, to have neither fear of God, nor respect for man would be the worst combination of all, right? It's something everyone would agree that would be the worst. And Jesus says that's who this judge is. He neither fears God nor respects man. There's nothing in him that's going to drive him to do what's right because there's a God. He doesn't fear him. There's nothing in him that's going to drive him to do what's right because he doesn't care what people think as well. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't think about God, but he doesn't care what people think about him either. So he's the worst sort. And what makes it even worse is he's not just some Joe Schmo out on the fringes. He's the judge of the city. That means you're going to run into him. And that means when you need someone to do right for you, it's this guy that you're going to have to go to. And that's when we meet the second character in the story. The second character is a widow. Look at verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. or adversary, Right? He, she comes, and when we find out she's a widow, we, we find out she is the polar opposite of this judge. And when we find out she's a widow, we're clued into everything we need to know about her. To be in that culture and in that day and to say that she was a widow was to say that she was literally at the bottom rung of the social ladder. She was at the bottom of the totem pole, right? She, she shared the cellar basement of society with orphans. That's who widows were. There was no lower level in society than to be a widow or an orphan. This was it. If you did not have the protection and provision of a husband or a father, you were basically left exposed to, in society... To be oppressed, exploited, taken advantage of, beat down in any way anyone could think of. And there was no one in your life who could stand up for you, defend you, speak out on your behalf. To be a widow there would have been the lowest place she could have been. Helpless, poor, needy. Which, by the way, as an aside, is why God continually calls his people to be a people who care for widows and orphans. Because God, from the beginning, from the Old Testament and through the New Testament, God is constantly commanding that His people be the kind of people who take care of the lowest and the least, the most downtrodden, the people of the class of the widows and the orphans. That's why God always historically calls His people to do that. Because they, His people, are the kind of people who knows what it's like to be defended when they were defenseless. Right? In the Old Testament, you had the story of Israel and the people of Israel. They were slaves to Egypt. In the New Testament, you have the church, the people who belonged to Jesus. They were slaves to sin. And in both places, they were helpless, defenseless, and God needed to send a Savior to rescue them. And so that's why God commands His people, you know what it's like to be defended when you couldn't defend yourself. You know what it was like to be an orphan on the outside of God's family and brought in. So you ought to lead in caring for widows and orphans. To do for another what God through his gospel, his good news did for you. Jesus commands it. In fact, Jesus' brother, James, says if you want to have true religion, true religion is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. That's the kind of scene you have here. This helpless, poor widow and this powerful judge. Anyone in society, anyone who was God-fearing in that day would have known their obligation to care for this widow. But the problem we've already met in the text is she's met the one man who's not God-fearing and who has no thought, who does not fear God and does not respect man, and now she is supposed to appear before him. So you talk about the odds stacked against her. Not only is she on the down and out, not only is she a widow, but she faces this judge who neither fears God nor respects man. The only thing that she has going for her is that she's not going to take no for an answer. She's going to persist and persevere. She's going to be resilient. She's resolved. And so she's going to come to him Again and again and again and again and she will not back down. She will not give him rest. She will not relent. She will not quit. If you look at verse 3, what does it say? This widow kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Right? She keeps coming to him over and over again. One pastor described it as almost when the judge woke up in the morning and walked out the door to go to work. There she was. Good morning, Judge. Just wanted to talk to you about my case. Give me justice. He takes a lunch break. There she is. Good good afternoon, Judge. Just want to talk to you about my case. I need justice. He takes a bathroom break. She jumps out of the stall. Good afternoon, Judge. Good to see you. Hope everything's okay. I need to talk to you about my case. I need justice. He's clocking out at the end of the day. There she is. Judge, good to see you. Hope it was a good day. I need justice as the security guards are dragging her away, I'll see you tomorrow, judge, because I need justice. Give me justice against my adversary. And she comes to him again and again and again and again, and she will not relent, and she will not quit, and she persists and perseveres and is resilient and is resolved. And watch what happens. Look at verse 4. For a while he refused... But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. What happens? Her persistence prevails. She she comes, in in fact, if you look at the text, he says, I, I don't fear God, I don't care about people, but this lady is bothering me. And then he says, if I don't give in, she's going to beat me down. Literally, the phrase there is, she's going to give me black eyes. She is going to wail on me with her requests till she wears me out. And so I have to give her justice. Though it is completely contrary to his character, because of her persistence and her resilience, because she is literally going to wear him down, he does what she asks. He listens to her petitions, and her persistence prevails. And that's the story. That's the story that Jesus tells to have the effect that we ought to always pray and not give up, not lose heart. So Jesus tells this story so that as his disciples and you enter into the story, identify with these characters, it ought to have the intended effect that it will cause you to always pray and not lose heart. So let's do that. Let's step into the story and identify with these characters that it might have the intended effect on us. Now, we know the parable is about prayer, so we know it's about God and us. And there's only two characters in the story, so one of them's us, one of them's God. You don't need a special degree to know which one's us, right? We're the widow. We're the helpless, poor ones who are bringing our petitions to this one with power and making our requests known over and over and over again. We're repeatedly going to this higher power and bringing our petitions. And when we look at the widow, we are looking at this perfect picture of what we ought to look like and how we ought to act like in prayer. Because when we look at her and we see her persistence and perseverance, her resiliency and resolve, that's supposed to mirror, that's supposed to look like us. When I read her story, I'm reminded of this verse in Isaiah 62. Let me just read you this verse. God is speaking to his people Israel and he tells them about prayer. And this is what he says. He says, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give me no rest until I establish Israel, until I establish Jerusalem. Now there's a bunch we could say about that. I just want you to pay attention to one phrase again. When he's telling his people what their prayer life should look like, he says, I want you to take no rest and give me no rest until I answer you. Do you hear that again? God is saying, I want your prayer life to be that you take no rest and you give me no rest Until I answer you. God is saying, I want you to bother me. I want you to pester me. I want you to give me no rest. I want you to knock on that door and keep knocking and persist and prevail. I want you to continue to petition me. I want you to wear me out with your petitions. Some of us wonder, can I really go back to God with this again? And I want you to hear, God is not only saying that's what you ought to do, He's saying that's what you're invited to do, that's what I delight in you doing. He delights in the petitions of His children, repeatedly being brought back to Him. He is inviting you in prayer to petition Him, to give Him no rest in and through your prayers. God is saying that's how you ought to be. So when you look at this widow and you see her persistence, and you see her resilience, and her perseverance, and her resolve, that's us. That's who we are called to be. And, and I want you to just picture what that would look like. As I was reading this story, I couldn't stop thinking about our Bombay Teen Challenge trip, and mission, and that whole work. Sometimes when we're in the Western world, where things are rightly done, at least as we see them, We hear a story like this and we identify somewhat. I remember hearing as that team came back from Bombay about how they had dealt with corrupt politicians and how they were powerless in the face of those corrupt politicians. And all I could think of is imagine a woman from that slum with nobody to talk for her, with no right, literally considered the lowest rung of society, and she needs justice and she's got to somehow get the justice from this corrupt politician. And the only thing she's got going for her is she's going to persist and persevere and be resolved and resilient. And Jesus saying, that widow, that poor helpless widow whose only thing is to persevere is what we ought to look like in prayer. Okay, that part's done. There's one problem though. The other character is supposed to represent God. And the other character in the story is this unrighteous judge. And So then you go, how is that character supposed to represent for us to God? How, what are we supposed to learn from the story if God is supposed to take the place of this unrighteous judge? And as we're sort of in that tension, and the story holds us in that tension for a second, Jesus explains it in verse 6 and following. Look at what he says in 6, 7, and 8. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. That's another way of saying, did you hear what the unrighteous judge said? Verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the parable, The point is not how similar God is to this unrighteous judge. The point is rather how vastly different he is. The the key to understanding the parable is not in comparing the two, but in contrasting the two. And saying, if this worthless, heartless, cold judge who didn't care about people and didn't care about God would eventually give in because of persistent petitions... How much more than God who is in heaven, who is the righteous judge, who does care for you, who is compassionate and thoughtful, will he not quickly hear you and give you justice? Will he not quickly have his heart moved to hear your petitions? If this woman could be bold enough to go to someone who had no thought for her, no care for her, no compassion for her, How much more ought you to be bold to go to a God who is infinitely for you, eternally for you? His every thought for you is a good one. What Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting the two and he's he's almost using this, if this lesser thing is true, how much more is this greater thing true? Right? And throughout his teaching, we've seen that before. What Jesus wants to say is, if this thing is true, how much more is this true? In fact, when we talked about prayer and approaching God in prayer like a father and like children, we saw Jesus use the same technique. Remember back then, he said, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children who ask, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right? And you saw it there. His point is, if you who are evil, still have something in your heart that wants to do good to these little ones, how much more your Father who is good will do good for us? And so it is here, if this unrighteous, heartless judge could be prevailed upon by persistent, resilient, resolved, persevering petitions, then how much more ought we to boldly persist in prayer with a God who is for us? How much more will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And, and there's just one word in there I want you to even notice. He says, to his elect. How much more will God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And I, I want you to consider, why did God, why did Jesus use that word elect? Why didn't he say, how much more will God help his people or his children? Why did he use the word elect there? There's a a great deal we could say about it that I won't. But I want you to simply hear this. He's contrasting these two. This one who is not for you, doesn't care about you, has no thought for you, and yet will still work for you. And this one who has been for you. And when he says the word elect, that means the people that God has chosen, those who he has selected, the people who are his. And when did he do this choosing and selecting? He, He did this electing before the foundation of the world. I was reading Ephesians 1 yesterday, and there's a verse that says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So do you know what that means? God wasn't for you the moment this problem that you're praying about started coming into your life. God has been for you from before the foundation of the world. God has been for you. Before he said, let there be light, he was for you. He was for you before he hung a star in the sky. You were already on his thoughts and in his mind. The elect are those whom God has set his favor and love upon, and he set his favor and love upon you before he hung stars in skies. Before the sun was made, before the world was born, before you were born, God was for you. If you can go to an unrighteous judge and persist in prayer, how much more to a God who has been before you from before the foundation of the world? It's not in light of this present problem in your life that God is now for you. He was cosmically, eternally for you, securing your greatest good when you were just still a thought in His mind. And that thought occurred in His mind from eternity past. Do you know God purposed good for you from before the foundation of the world. That, that is that God in eternity past had decided that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be crushed and crucified and killed to secure for you good and to secure for you good eternally. And that thought that God had for you was from before the beginning. How much more Will God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay over them? And Jesus says, I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. He ends by saying this, verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, God's not going to delay. He's going to give you justice speedily. And when he says speedily, you know from your life it doesn't feel speedily. You know that some things you're praying for are taking a great deal of time. What he's saying is when he returns, that justice will happen quickly. Now you, you know that your timing and his timing are not on the same page. You know a day for you is like a thousand years for him. A thousand years for him is like a day for you. And his delays in your life can feel like denials. And yet that's why Jesus is saying this. He's saying, in this interim between his coming and his coming again, when he comes, he will bring with him justice and it will be speedily. In fact, in in chapter 17, in the passage before, he starts talking about how quick it will be. He says, people will be going about their business. They'll be eating, they'll be drinking, they'll be marrying and giving one another in marriage. Everything will be as it always is, and he'll come. And he'll come. It'll be that quick. And and when he comes and when you're ushered into eternity, this long delay will feel like that. In light of the quickness of his coming and in light of the eternity we will spend with justice done on our part for all time, this delay will feel like that. And he's got purposes and plans and reasons that we do not know and don't know how to tease out. But I do know he will come speedily. And Jesus is saying this. When he comes... Will he find faith on the earth? There is no question that God is for you. There's no question that he's gonna answer your prayer. There's no question that he will do right by you, for he will. The only question is, when he comes, will he find faith in you? Will he find that you had lost heart and quit on him and quit on prayer? Or will he find that your heart was saying, He's going to come, and justice is coming. And I'm saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. And I'm saying, soon and very soon you have to come. Will he find that kind of faith in your heart, or will he have found you to have lost heart and trailed off along the way? And that's how Jesus ends the parable, and and that's how I want you to end as well. There's no question he's for you. There's no question you can petition him. There's no question you can prevail and bother and persist and give him no rest. There's no question he is for you. In fact, he's been eternally for you. There's no question he will answer and give justice. There's no question that he will not work for you because he will. There's no, justi- no question that he won't come speedily for he will. The only question is, will he find faith in you when he comes? Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit and transform our hearts and work in our hearts in such a way that we would be the kind who do not lose faith, who do not lose heart, and do not quit, but that we would give you no rest, that we would seek you in prayer for our lives and for the things of your kingdom and your glory on the earth, and that we would persevere and persist, be resilient and resolved in our prayer. We do not come like a poor widow to an unrighteous judge. We do not badger you as though you are not for us, but rather we are invited like children to petition a father whose heart has been for us, who purposed in his mind from eternity past to let himself be crushed rather than us, and so sent his only son for us in our place, that our future might be eternally secured and good. Help us and teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.